I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. The Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Welcome everyone to the Ranch Investor Podcast. I have a very exciting guest. She just released a book that is soon to be New York Times bestseller, Amazon bestseller. And she released it on my 35th birthday, uh, quite quite the birthday present, Chloe. Wow. Yes, right here. Thank you. The Raw Deal, Hidden Corruption, Corporate Greed, and the Fight for the Future of Meat. And I love meat, Chloe. Now, when you were writing this, before we get to introducing there's a lot of there's a lot of points to touch on. Did you just try to piss everyone off when you were writing this? <laughs> no, not at all. I tried to tell my truth. <laughs> so you you talk about um, meat alternatives. You talk about the billionaires. You talk about going meatless. Um, it just seems like no one was left alone in this. Well, I think industrialized systems have kind of delivered a raw deal to everyone on like every level in some ways, which is why I figured I would share what I've learned, especially through that billionaire lens, because it is such a weird world that I've been able to weasel my way into. So I I, I figured I just I had to share what I've learned. Now, when you say weasel your way into, you're a you're a staff writer for Forbes, by the way, and you've been featured on NPR. You're kind of a big deal, Chloe. Oh, please. Um, no, but I, I came to this work. I came to this research through my work at Forbes. I started out at Forbes nearly a decade ago uh, on our billionaire team, and I was doing the net worth valuations that you see on our signature list, like the Forbes 400, the world's billionaire list, and not just for folks in agriculture. I was valuing financiers and real estate investors and all sorts of different billionaires. And then also found myself valuing the Cargill family and Tyson and a lot of different big meatpacking companies. The Batista brothers, you you might be on their hit list after this book, Chloe. Yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> no comment there. Although I haven't, I haven't heard <laughs> from them. <laughs> you won't. You won't know. Um, so, are, Chloe, are you like a modern day muckraker? Are you like a millennial Upton Sinclair here? What what's what's going on? I uh, know. I appreciate that. You know, I think. What one of my early reviews came out and actually compared the book to Upton Sinclair. I think there's it always feels good for that, although that was a work of fiction and a novel and not journalism. Um, but you know, Upton Sinclair actually was a year younger than me when The Jungle actually came out. And so I think I've I don't know, people have been making a little bit of comparison, which has been fun, but well, yeah. maybe maybe you'll be in US history books uh for public education here in what 60 years i'm not sure and i'm not sure that's the point but i am excited to get the book into hands i would love it to be in the hands i mean come on upton sinclair everyone everyone has read upton sinclair in history books across you know u.s public school so it, it's fun 
So updating from the jungle, uh, today we have, we have consolidation in the meatpacking industry, which is uh, no secret to my audience. Uh, but the, the millennial issue that Upton Sinclair did not have is fake meat. <laughs> Tell me about your investigations into fake meat and why, why they made your, your list of uh, people who might be upset, your long list of people who might be upset with your book. Yeah, you know, so I write about the billionaires and the, a lot of the food billionaires were investing in some of these alternative proteins and a lot of uh, them were also then fueling a lot of these deals. And so I wanted to write about what I was seeing because at the end of the day, what we have right now is billions of dollars flowing into some of these alternative proteins in the past five years. And what's come out have been a lot of ultra processed, unhealthy products. They are using climate marketing to really make folks think that they're going to be impacting the climate when they're eating these products, but often they're really not, it's really just surface level. You know, a lot of these products are using industrially farmed inputs and not really going above and beyond to actually make systemic change. And so I think there's a lot of different aspects of the disappointment of some of these challengers that I write about, but I particularly wanted to write about them because I was seeing so many billionaires investing in these startups and really kind of changing the market and also in some ways like manipulating demand in that. And I, that is one of those kind of big power imbalances that I wanted to write about. In your, in your sleuthing, did you find any pump and dump? Cause like beyond meat stock is uh, I'm delighted to see how poorly it's performing but it, it it shows me that there could have been some pump and dump by this this billionaire class. Well, well, so it's super interesting. So one of the other reasons I really wanted to write this book is because I, aside from my work at Forbes doing billionaire reporting, I also head up our 30 under 30 food list reporting. And I, I write a lot about all these different food trends. And so I was seeing this flow of funding into this, into this, into the really a, a, a frenzy. But at the same time, it was never really proving itself out and customers weren't repeat purchasing in the stores once these products were actually getting into the stores. And there was just a lot of hype and it really became a bubble that's essentially already gone bust in a very short amount of time. I wonder if one of their challenges is just habit changing because it's so hard to change a habit that um, I, I'm... I'm hesitant to tell my audience I've ate a Beyond Burger a couple times. My wife made me try the the Burger King one when it came out mm -hmm. right away, and I'm not I'm not ignorant, so yeah, I'll I'll try it, see what it's about. And I didn't think it was that terrible. I mean, I definitely prefer beef burger over it, but it didn't it didn't make me uh, hate my life after <laughs> that. Uh, but I just wonder if if they're trying to get people to have uh, some sort of ethical buy-in. I wonder if it's they're struggling with changing habits and behaviors. They definitely are struggling with changing habits and behaviors too. But I do actually want to go back to what you were actually also talking about earlier with Beyond and, and their stock valuation because 
a lot of the original marketing money and a lot of this original push and the money that, that was used to help them go public and, and get this big frenzy going was actually funded from and love these like environmental and, and animal rights type groups, which I think is notable. But what you had when Beyond was going public, it was essentially one of the first food companies to go public in a really long time. Only five food companies had gone public in the decade prior, pretty much. And so you had a lot of institutional investors getting really excited about this opportunity. And so the stock surged like almost immediately. And by went public in the spring of 2019. And by that July, it was valued more per share than McDonald's and like a lot of other major, major food companies. Um, but then as soon as this kind of lockup period was over, I'm not sure if your audience would be familiar with lockup period, but essentially, you know, insiders have to keep their shares after a company goes public for a certain amount of time. And then once that time is up, they're able to drop it. And so what you ha saw was, this crazy, crazy, crazy valuation, you know, huge multiples of what this company probably should have been trading at since it was so unprofitable. And then once this lockup moment happened, a lot of folks dropped their shares, sold their shares off. And then that's when you started seeing some of this valuation coming down and then challenges emerging with more of this adoption, with more of this marketing budget and research budget being used for the products that aren't really getting people to be repeat purchasing what is what that's what these products need at the end of the day and then yeah i started writing a lot of uh, into into 20 at least 20 to 2021 all about how just short sellers started piling on and really driving the stock down even more how deep did you get into formula pricing cattle you know i think there's been so much amazing work on that already and i wanted to make sure this book at some point had sort of like that consumer as I wanted to make sure like any reader could read it but I, I went pretty deep in like the studies and the research I did it might not necessarily show in what was written but I was reading you know studies and different reports about how this actually works and like uh, the antitrust scrutiny and all these different things for probably 20 years worth of research yeah yeah and since you're you're like the beat writer for food trends uh, do consumers even give a shit about producers getting shafted by JBS, Tyson, Cargill? You know, I think they do. And I think they do to a certain point, unfortunately. I think there's a lot of Americans who see meat and, and all food, but meat particularly as being at the same time too expensive, but also too cheap. And I'm, I was hoping to share more about this in the book to, to make sure folks really understand why it is important to support systems that are better for producers because all of this has been hidden all this has been obscured and that's because the meat companies want that to happen because it's it's harder for the producers to to counterbalance these power dynamics in that situation and so you know i write a little bit about ways to do that in producers unions different types of transparency acts i would love to see uh, more like you know trades happening in terms of how insider trading really happens um, in the sec reporting um but right now there's more of a lag and i think there could be just better ways that more transactions could be reported and help to spread out the balance of data and information too cheap based on the negative externalities 
Yes, yes, that's definitely. And the negative externalities, but then also clearly how others are getting shafted, like as as you say, you know, uh, uh, workers, producers, uh, there comes a point where, you know, you know, I, there's, I, I talk also about how grass-fed, pasture-raised um, products are also too expensive, but at the same time too, that, that there's a, the scale needed to bring that down. Um, but yeah, I, I, the true cost accounting aspect and also how meat packers have been able to hoard profits and then use those profits to buy back shares and raise their stock price and all these different things at the same time, all interrelated. Well, you're really taking me back to fifth and sixth grade U.S. history class because you're you sounds like this like is a, a populist revolution. Your book that uh, I mean, you've got you've got this the jungle going on. And now I hear some like Granger movement, like the farmers revolution that you're you're calling for co-ops and unions and starting the the Granger, the modern day Granger movement. You know, I. Don't know if I'd say that, but, you know, I appreciate a little tongue in cheekness. I mean, I come to this from being a Forbes reporter. You know, I come to this from seeing the best and the worst of capitalism at the end of the day. And, and uh, you know, the book is very clear. I don't think we have enough time to start from scratch. And I don't think we have enough time and or money to waste on the wrong solution. So the book really also calls for like workers at these companies, these meat packers, reforms seriously needs to happen there. But at the same time, they have to be a part of the solution. And what's already existed and been erected over the past few decades needs to be very much in the dialogue. And right now, I think there's just been not enough of that happening. All right. Now, now be forthright with me, Chloe. Were you even thinking about this before there were empty shelves at Costco in 2020? So I'd say the actual inspiration for this book starts in my chapter seven, which is this, it's a chapter I have in the book, but it actually comes from a Forbes feature. It's the story of Henry Davis in Greater Omaha Packing. And I was one of the only women on the billionaire be at Forbes at the time and spent a lot of time realizing that we didn't have anyone actually looking at food and agriculture specifically. So I was really trying to figure out where there would be new wealth and uh, whether we haven't seen over the years. And I realized that Henry Davis is the hundred percent owner of greater Omaha. And while it's not as big as Tyson, it actually has the, the fifth largest in, in the beef industry. And it was that moment when I realized how 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 crazy the consolidation really was because the top four had 80 plus percent. And, you know, that meant, you know, Tyson was like 20 to 25 percent or so JBS 20 to 25 percent or so of this market overall. But then the number five player, Greater Omaha, was like, you know, two percent. So it was just so much smaller and the multitudes were the magnitudes were so different. And I wanted to tell that story of how this billionaire, you know, this, this, this guy, Henry, you know, worked in the slaughterhouses during summers growing up. His, his father had started this business, you know, selling one cow, you know, one cattle, one, one, and, and giving the hides to a friend a day and the Omaha stockyards and having it grow into this $1.5 billion revenue business. Um, and Henry was able to do that by maintaining control and maintaining this niche in this industry that was consolidating so much around him. But in the book, I tell this the funny story of me, you know, being the first 
real industrial slaughterhouse that I've ever visited. And me going down there in 96 degree heat and not having too much time for this reporting trip. So I had planned the slaughterhouse tour and then had this steakhouse dinner planned later that night. And <laughs> it was an eye-opening experience. And the steak was also probably the best steak I've ever had in my entire life. But it was truly wild, you know, going from this industrial meat packer when the first slaughterhouse of the Temple Grandin had even designed, whisking away, eating this tomahawk that is 36 ounces with a bone from my elbow to my to my finger. And then getting to tell this story for Forbes of how this billionaire was able to maintain this, 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 this small niche. And that's really what set me off on all of this reporting from there. So if you, if you ate this massive tomahawk, you're not meatless yourself. No. And that's why the book is very much not advocating for folks to go vegan. It's very clear. You know, I'm not saying that folks need to go vegan. I I, am saying that meatpacking needs to change. I think confinement, polluting operations that needs to all end, but there is a place for meat in the future. And I'm very open about how I still eat meat. I still buy meat from the food hub that works with my local CSA. Speaking of Temple Grandin, my audience is very familiar with, with her. Um, you know, another, another uh, celebrity within my circles. And she gave you great remarks, great kudos on your book. Uh, Temple Grandin said, Temple. <laughs> some meat packers will hate this book but it will force everybody to think the big is fragile problem. The big is fragile problem also applies to other industries such as electronic chips and baby formula. Yeah. We're kind of seeing that right now with baby formula, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, those were, I mean, that was such high praise from Temple. Oh my gosh. And you know, I, 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 I put her in the introduction because it, it, was such a formalizing moment for me. I mean, she was calling me all the time, multiple times a day in the pandemic. And I was just sitting there talking to her about what she was hearing, what was happening and how she could use her experience and expertise to advocate for what needs to be done. And, and, and I was just so grateful to do it. Um, and that blurb was hilarious. So I'm, I was really excited to see it. it. Yeah. I think, I think there are a lot of meatpackers who probably will hate it and, and that's okay. Tell me uh, another target of yours, the suits, Wall Street, the financier, the financiers. Tell me how they're part of the problem. That's why I really also wanted to write this book, because there are financial institutions, financial structures that are underpinning the status quo. And if that doesn't change, we're not going to be able to change the status quo of the meatpacking industry. And, you know, the financial institutions impact this from all ends, right? You can talk about JBS. They have major backers in Fidelity and BlackRock. By the way, those shares increased after these major corruption scandals in Brazil and in the US that I write about in the book have come to light. And so they're continuing to get rubber stamped. That's just, again, one example. But loans are another example of how the way loans and loans are given in this country, A, has been racist over over the decades, but also has just been uh, completely as used as a tool to dictate what corporations can demand of their growers. And those foundations are what we need to really address. And that's why I also personally wrote this book for 
the finance community because there are so many of these even new private equity investors or venture capitalists that I talk to who are looking at industrial agriculture or new CAFOs, you know, like, for example, Costco adding, creating new CAFOs just a few years ago for its rotisserie chicken operation and how those facilities are some of the ones that have actually been having some pretty big outbreaks of avian flu just this year. You know, there's new investors that are looking to roll up different types of industrialized farming in all these different sectors. And it's this new area. And that's... Mergers and acquisitions are the name of the game. So investigating a solution, does this come from the legislative branch? Does it come from grassroots movements? Does it come from the executive branch? Because we have the Packers and Stockyards Act out there and this vertical integration formula pricing um, that should be investigated by the Justice Department, which would be the executive branch of government. We, we continue to see very little movement out of any administration on investigating uh, monopolies, oligopolies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how do we how do we move forward? Does it does it start with Chloe's Granger revolution? I mean, that's part of why I write about as you call it this Granger revolution. No, because I mean, there's been decades of opportunity to have actual antitrust scrutiny, and while there aren't actual any laws that actually have an actual you know statute of limitations on taking back any mergers. I've talked to a lot of antitrust experts and it really is at the end of the day, extremely hard to unscramble the eggs that have already been scrambled. And so while DOJ and the FTC have even the past year been hiring a lot of really expensive lawyers and investigators to be looking at big tech, but also meet and they will need to have a return on that investment. You know, obviously, there's also a lot of interest from policy. There's been lots of different bills put out, even though the past two years in terms of transparency and accountability. And obviously, we've seen all those fights kind of combust. And now with a split Congress, I'm not too optimistic that there will be significant change, especially with the enforcement that's needed. That said, though, you know, I think there there has to be a place for regulation. There has to be a place for corporations to take on some of this themselves. And then at the same time, there needs to be counterbalances put in place that actual folks who have a vested interest are able to make sure is happening. So at the end of the day, I think we've seen five plus decades of, you know, co-ops failing or different movements not happening because the corporations and the regulators have been able to maintain the status quo, maintain control, and not have been have been not able to enforce anything seriously. I'll also just share quickly, you know, even while there has been more antitrust scrutiny this year alone, DOJ has faced some significant failures, um, especially in, in how they've been investing a lot of the money. My book actually doesn't go into this as much. Um, it goes into a lot of the price fixing allegations and there's you know, hundreds of different class actions in terms of price fixing and with, with big meat packers and chicken, pork and beef. Um, but there, there's also the case of, of wage manipulation allegations and there's been DOJ 
you know, investigations happening there that led to a big consent decree, which essentially, you know, there was this trade-off that happened this past summer where there was the Sanderson Wayne farm chicken merger that would have added, then it ended up did add significant consolidation to the chicken industry. And DOJ ended up letting it happen because those companies signed a consent decree that court ordered some significant change that counterbalance some of this wage manipulation scheme that had been emerging for two decades. And so you're seeing DOJ maybe going about things a different way, also in part because over the past year and a half, they tried relentlessly to get criminal charges to stick against 10 plus chicken executives at Pilgrim Pride, Pilgrim's Pride and others, and that those cases ended up having retrial after retrial, three different retrials, and ended up, you know, falling apart. And it was a pretty embarrassment, embarrassing experience for the Department of Justice. And so then now you have, when I started writing this book, the chicken industry was 50% consolidated. Now it's 60%. And there was a JB acquis- JBS acquisition just this week. I mean, new acquisitions are continuing to happen. Is this one of those problems that is out of sight, out of mind for the average person? Is this is this going to take a food shortage and riots in the streets? And uh, when when people starve, they start a revolution. Well, you know, I I did address that in some ways, especially in the introduction of the book, because there is this uneasy relationship over history with meat and there not being enough meat and political instability. And it's happened in the U.S. You know, Americans hate when meat is too expensive and it's led to different institutions toppling over the years. It's also led to, you know, in 1947, the 16-year stint of Democrats leading Congress was toppled because of meat boycotts. But it also has led to many different real situations. And and I wanted to bring that up because that and that relationship is something that meatpacking CEOs bring up to me. They talk about how when wealth increases in the country, the first thing folks want to do is buy more meat and how they want to be able to do that because there is this, this potential instability that happens when people can't access what they want. And so meatpackers use that fear to their advantage. And while in some ways it is I guess warranted based on you know the the clips of the news research and all the different historic research that I also found it it it's a way that they're able to stoke fears and and keep themselves institutionalized potentially in ways that they don't need to be. Do they do they uh, propagate the fear mongering through uh, NCBA and the beef checkoff? Oh yeah, I mean the whole thing. I mean there is so that that trade group NAMI. So many of these different trade groups have spent decades working hand in hand with these big meat packers and, and 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 funding lobbyists that are eroding different standards on local, state, and federal levels. And environmentally, we can talk about, it, but also just in terms of how to squeeze out and continue to push out producers and other independents and smaller independents. I mean, this has been a concerted effort over time that's created a system where there's very little challenging. The, the the big meat. Would I would I be wrong to say that part of the problem? Is, am I a conspiracy theorist if I think part of the issue is USDA and FDA uh, 
the the revolving door of lobbyists going to say Purdue Pharma. We uh, we saw that that was the case with uh, Oxy, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and now it seems like NCBA, JBS, USDA, uh, FDA that uh, lobbyist becomes an executive, an executive becomes a lobbyist, and it's it's working out pretty pretty good for them. I write about that specifically in the case of JBS because I use JBS as a, a kind of a cautionary tale of an extreme case of what like ill-gotten gain funded foreign power can do to come in really quickly and take over the American meat market and drive further consolidation. And, you know, JBS is an amazing example of a company that's really ingratiated itself extremely, extremely quickly in the U.S. You're talking about advisors from, you know, former Speaker of the House, John Boehner and Harvey Pitt, the former SEC chairman. They just hired a new chief legal officer a few months ago that was also, you know, a, a DOJ antitrust guy. Um, they have a significant revolving door in terms of their their top executives, but also on, on the lower levels, too. And I will say, too, in terms of who's currently in power at USDA today with Tom Vilsack, he had been USDA chief, you know, back under Obama roughly, you know, 10, you know, eight, 10 years ago. And that was a key time for JBS's rise. And while there was one lawsuit from the government around antitrust scrutiny, there was not enough scrutiny at that time. And it, it, it paved the way for JBS to have such a strong foothold in the country today. And even again, in the example of JBS, you know, uh, Laura, uh, Secretary, uh, Senator DeLauro has, has even this past year and last year specifically asked Secretary Vilsack, why does JBS continue to get public school funding or different contracts for meat? And he essentially, you know, brushes off, says he looks into it, says he agrees. And then those contracts continue to get handed down and JBS continues to get more money from the federal government. Well, as, as much as I would like to uh, make this <clears throat> a Fox News versus CNN issue and, <laughs> and then just really divide everyone, divide and conquer and, and just really get the blood boiling people pissed off and angry at each other. This is kind of a bipartisan issue because uh, Sonny, uh, the previous Secretary of Agriculture, he was wasn't he tied in pretty deep with uh, the grain merchandisers, which is oh, also yeah. a largely consolidated monopoly within the food and ag industry. Grain merchandisers, I mean, they touch and control a small piece of every bite you take. Absolutely, yeah, mm -hmm. and I should say too that Vilsack was in between his stints. He was doing some big dairy dairy stuff over there, but. No, I mean, I have a moment, too, actually, where I confront uh, former Secretary Purdue around the contracts and the trade aid that went to JBS. And, and he, he he brushes it off, too. And what's he doing now? Now that he's out, he's investing and trying to make money. And uh, I, I also quote Cook's Venture founder Matt Wadiak in the book. And he when he he was previously at Blue Apron as a co-founder and actually when uh, Vilsack had left the USDM was as was in that brief period where he was trying to be in the private sector. He uh, Wadek even uh, interviewed him and wanted to know what you know what Vilsack really wanted to do, and what did he want to do? He said he wanted to pay off his mortgage, make money. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he governor of Iowa, 
Secretary of Agriculture twice. Yeah. Uh, Purdue. Yeah. Director. Of, yeah. Yeah. So this is this is really a bipartisan issue because I think RCAF brought up country of origin labeling in 1992. Mm-hmm. And since then we've had Bush, <laughs> Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden. We've had six presidents who seem to not be too concerned about mergers and acquisitions and um, a food supply chain that is not uh, very, very dependent on every piece of it. I mean, it's it's just in time inventory. And mm-hmm. if one thing goes wrong, as we found out in 2020, uh, the whole thing is at threat. But we've never had any party, uh, any any president, no party in Congress has taken on the issue. You have a little bit from Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren mm-hmm. today um, mm-hmm. about monopolistic practices. Uh, but no, it just seems to be bipartisan in that no one's going to touch it. And that's the problem. And let's go back to cool too. We were talking a little bit about JBS and there have been different times when, when country of origin labeling has been super popular. And there was a resurgence even in 2021 with a few bills. And I thought maybe there, it would get some significant push behind it, but it seems to have already stalled out. And and now with this new Congress we have going in, I mean, I think it's going to be hard to see, but, you know, those, the lack of those sorts of regulations have been a huge detriment to American, particularly grass fed producers who are now really struggling to compete with imported products from South America specifically, or, you know, JBS can just import, I think they import maybe $3 billion worth uh, of beef from Brazil into the U.S. every year, and they can just you know process it a tiny bit more at one of their U.S. plants. They've got nine of them, and then all of a sudden it's an American product. But is that beef actually being linked to Amazon deforestation? You know, there are a lot of different issues, and I don't know, country of origin labeling is 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 something that I hear term time and time again from the small scale independent producers who are really begging for something to be done to protect them and what their labels are actually claiming. So where do we go from here? Look into your crystal ball, make a prophecy for me, Chloe. Does this end in revolution, chaos in the streets? I sure hope there's no chaos in the streets. I think we all deserve to survive crisis and dignity. And all I can predict is what the science predicts, which is, there's going to be a lot more crisis. There's going to be a lot of worsening issues happening that's going to impact how our food is made, how it's grown, how it's transported, how it's processed, and how it's warehoused. We are cratering towards this food insecure future. And we really only have a few years to figure out how to change systems, but then also how to work out the kinks that we need to before it's too late. So, you know, I don't know if we need, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm a journalist, right? Like I'm not, I'm not a community activist. I, I, I'm excited to see how this call to action is, is taken by folks, but I, I, I did want it to be serious and I didn't want it to be overly optimistic because it is pretty much as grave as possible. Well, 
you brought it up. So I don't want to be ungentlemanlike and ask your age. You said you brought it up <laughs> when Upton Sinclair yeah. uh, produced the jungle one, one year younger than you. How old are you? 29. 29. His book came so, out at 28. Yeah. I think the first article was when he was at 27, maybe. You might be able to uh, empathize my theory, my belief here around reform, but I think reform comes from the millennial mama bear. Mm -hmm. I mean, women are huge purchasers. They are driving household purchases. And I mean, I, I see some of that already being ignited on social media with folks very concerned about what's in their food and how it just takes so much time and research to figure out truly what is what they're eating and where it comes from. So I, I agree. It's very much a generational shift. I mean, those values that millennial mama bears have of feeding their kids, know your farmer, you know, more direct consumer, local foods, um, cleaner foods, uh, a mm -hmm. label that isn't, you know, so half the box. Um, I mean, they're, they're going to continue that purchasing trend so long as they have the income. I mean, that shit's expensive, Chloe, the, the clean eating, but it uh, is go on. <laughs> no, it, it is. And it, there's such a privilege in that. Right. And that's part of all. So it's not okay. And that's why I also address in the book, just the mass inequity of subsidies and how subsidies work and how big meat has been benefiting from that for generations. Whereas, you know, and even too, you know, with comparing, comparing alternative proteins and the massive funding that they've gotten versus some of what the pasture raised folks or grass fed folks, more sustainable producers have gotten, you know, there's so many people who say, if only I could get a, a 10th of what, you know, beyond God or impossible God, if I only could get a hundred thousand dollars, I don't need a million dollars. I just need a hundred thousand. I would be able to make magic with that. And I think that's really real. And there's just a clear, rebalancing that needs to happen in terms of how support is doled out federally and locally um, from our government. Uh, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head there. ARC, PLC, CSP, EQIP, all these government programs, whether it's through uh, FSA or NRCS, they absolutely benefit the status quo. Right. And why does that purchasing not actually able to benefit local supply chains, right? Like why can't public schools, like why I, I advocate for, for farmers or local producers or, or folks who are interested in this to join like public school boards because public school, local food purchasing and, and changing supply chains to purchase local food is one of that actually great ways to make real substantial change. Um, but it doesn't just happen with public schools. There are so many institutions that the government funds or, you know, prisons, uh, nursing homes, hospitals, and that's all also at the end of the day, creating this horrible cycle where folks are so unhealthy because of the ultra processed foods that we're eating. And it's creating also ma major burden on taxpayers, like let alone just also hurting us as, as humans, you know, Healthcare <laughs> so, costs. right, right. I mean, there, there's two trillion really shunted down the line, actually, just from our food system. And, and that's part of why there needs to be a, also a true cost accounting for how much meat packers are making and how they're pushing down the costs of healthcare or the different, you know, uh, I read a lot of studies about the impacts of living close to production or healthcare, asthma, birth defects, miscarriage, really real serious things. Um, and just, again, not, not anything that the profits of meatpackers are, are actually getting to take account for. Now, if you, uh, if you talk to 
NCBA, Farm Bureau, they, they will say voluntary is better. It's, it's the better alternative is not compulsory labeling. Uh, voluntary labeling, country of origin, voluntary producers getting together to form their own packing plant uh, to be competitive with the big four. Uh, why haven't we seen that yet? I mean, apparently the profits aren't there. If it was lucrative, everyone would be doing it. I write about that. I mean, I'm still not totally opposed to co-op slaughterhouse. I'd love to see a place where those flourish, but I write about producers unions because I haven't seen co-op slaughterhouses flourish like they really can. And there's been, you know, many decades of, of many big examples really trying, but often these cases end up having infights or different management issues. I think these are producers who want to be producers and I understand why there needs to be a kind of a separation, but also why a producer would benefit from having a stake in the meatpacker that's ending up selling their food and why that also is extremely important to counterbalance what's been happening. And so co-ops, I think, have managerial issues and also haven't been supported to the same extent as others have. And so that's part of the other issue. Well, you uh, you definitely struck me with... Um right now what would be considered alternative choices of food. So you're grass fed uh, direct from the farmer type. Um, it's a privilege, it's for the privilege because I'm, I'm a big milk drinker. I drink two and a half gallons of whole milk a week. Wow. That's how I keep this immaculate dad bod that I have. <laughs> and I love milk. And I saw that uh, Albertsons, which is going through a merger right now. Mm -hmm. We can uh, talk about it. Yep. Albertsons, part of the uh, the grocery industry is just consolidating like crazy as well. But Albertsons carried grass fed milk and uh, it was yellower. And I was like, I got to try this. And it was wonderful. I would mm. I would be drinking three gallons a week of grass fed milk. It was amazing. It, it tastes so much better. But damn, is it expensive? I, I can't drink three gallons a week of that. I hear that. And I mean, food inflation and food costs are so expensive and if people are really, really hurting. I think that's also what is often hidden or missed from regulars who really are often a little out of touch. But I also would love to also talk about what you're talking about there because so the Albertsons merger, so Kroger Albertsons, the top one and two in the grocery industry are merging. And that's after a decade of lots of different mergers and bankruptcies in the grocery industry. And I write about that. And I think your audience would be interested to know a little bit more about it because I write about it from the perspective of monopsony power and how we all have grown up with this idea of monopoly. And that's clear and easier for us to understand. And while there is this monopoly or oligopoly problem on the meatpacker side, there also is the problem on the buyer side of not enough buyers. And so there's, there's this monopsony problem, particularly because of Walmart and also Amazon driving this race to the bottom and also fueling a lot of this consolidation, these bankruptcies happening elsewhere in the grocery industry. And so you can't really fix the monopoly problem without also fixing the monopsony problem. And that's one of the big takeaways I really hope folks understand about this. Walmart and Amazon they wouldn't be part of the problem because they carry your book, don't they? Yes. I mean, 
Um, Walmart and Amazon. I'm not actually sure if Walmart is. I know Amazon is. They actually made the book a best um, of the month for an editor's pick, which is quite nice. But the book does actually, I don't know if they actually read it because the book does go very much into <laughs> Amazon's, um, some of their issues and how Amazon has been also fueling, you know, and how they can really dictate a lot of the terms that are set for these meatpacking companies that are selling them meat at the end of the day. Where else can we find your book? And uh, for people like me who are on the road a lot, listen to audiobooks and podcasts, uh, is there is there an audiobook of Chloe Sorvino reading her own book out there? There is an audiobook. You will not have me reading it. There's a professional actress that wasn't hired. But um, we're available wherever books are really sold. I'm getting amazing texts and pictures from folks who are seeing it at different libraries and bookstores across the country. And we're at all the major booksellers too. Now uh, you, you've, you've got a pretty good uh, feel for the beat on the street and you're, you're New York, correct? Little, I am downtown. A little different culturally than where I'm, where I'm at in Montana. But Look, I, I, I love part of what, 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 what I love most about being a journalist and, and having worked at Forbes for nearly a decade is that I've gone to some amazing, amazing parts of the country that maybe I wouldn't have ever seen before, but just farms in so many different corners of the world. And it's, it's been incredible to see. So I, some of the pictures you sent me, you had a, uh, a book review, you were, you were promoting it, featuring it at a tiny little independent bookstore. It was not Barnes and Nobles. Um, it looked very East coast and, uh, uh, very uh, like Upper West Side Village, uh, probably probably not people who would uh, be in the Bob Montana bar uh, ever. I'm curious, what are you finding for this uh, this understanding and acceptance between the urban community who this affects as a consumer and the rural community who this affects as a producer? I wrote this book for everyone. And so, yeah, I, you know, I live in downtown New York. I've got a lot of family in the area. So we had a great sold out book show. It was actually McNally Jackson's probably best night in four plus years because they really don't have crazy big events anymore. And it was wonderful to, to see how much great turnout we got. Um, but I've been getting so much excitement from farmers and different folks in different rural communities as well. It's really not just for the urban eater. I would actually really push it back against that because I, I I write for the folks who are in this industry and I write for all eaters too, but I I would never want to think or have anyone think that this is like from some some sort of urban only perspective because at the end of the day, and the reason I write even again about Walmart is because of how much a lot of corporations have stripped wealth and power from rural communities and how that's created this massive and problematic urban rural divide in this country, which also is part of the problem here, right? Like, and, and a lot of the solutions that we need to talk about here, especially from a regulatory perspective, are massively just also underpinning that rural, rural urban divide, right? Like, 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 like broadband coverage for these farms, period. I mean, the fact that farmers 
could potentially get access to having more direct to consumer marketing via Instagram, but have to A, compete with the startups that are being backed by billionaires and then acquiring customers on Instagram and paying up and bidding up Instagram ads. But also just the fact that this broadband access often leaves out folks to even be able to access the type of marketing to begin with. I mean, that's that's like, let's like level the playing field full stop, like number one, you know? And so I don't know. I mean, I think I, I write about how, you know, folks like White Oak Pastures have been able to completely rehabilitate areas. Uh, you know, it's a farm in southeastern Georgia that's been taking over different different farms in the area over the past few decades that were, you know, industrialized peanut farms that, you know, had been essentially like left by the wayside because they were so overly farmed and with too many synthetics that these soils became almost entirely inoperable, but they've been rehabilitating them with grazing and hooves and manure. And, you know, I think that's exactly why I talk about re-regionalizing the food system and supporting local producers. And it's those types of organizations and farms that are going to be able to feed people in their areas when crisis hits. Well, I think this, you, uh, you brought up, I, I picked up your book. It caught my attention because uh, it seems like rural pro producers who've been fighting for country of origin labeling, they've been fighting for Packers and Stockyards Act antitrust laws for uh, 40 years now. They need, they need a friend in the densely populated urban regions. They need a friend in the consumer, a champion in the consumer, because they're these producer groups just they're just not getting the job done. And uh the power and money is way bigger than them. And they probably won't ever get it done without the help of the consumer. I felt like I could potentially bridge this gap between the billionaires and the profits, but then also the financiers underpinning all of this the investors that are fueling this frenzy, and then also the science and the health aspects and the human eating aspects at the end of the day. Well, thanks, Chloe. The raw deal, hidden corruption, corporate greed, and the fight for the future of meat. There it is, Chloe Sorvino. And also she brought up Will Harris. He is a few episodes back. If anyone is just tuning in and would like to hear more about Will Harris's story, that is a uh, that is very interesting. Regenerative ag might be that bridge between the rural producers and uh, the urban consumer. Any final thoughts, so Chloe? Um, where where this should go get it right now? Buy raw deal at your local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes Noble, wherever you like to buy books. And thank you so much. We really just don't have the time to waste. And now is the time for change. Thank you, Chloe. Thanks for tuning in to the Ranch Investor Podcast. Click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.